What up? This is Dart Adams, and this is Dart Against Humanity, episode 45. Uh, been busy the last few days. I went to Harvard to see Akua Naruz. Uh She's the Harvard uh, Nasia Jones Hip Hop Fellow for 2019. And uh, she did this colloquium for um, The Keeper. Uh, basically, it's a project that she's doing. It's actually uh, chronicling the history of black women in hip hop. So it's going to be a database that has all the information, searchable database for all the information of uh, women, black women in hip hop uh, between 1979 and now. So um, I went there. Uh, she's friends with. Uh, we have several mutual friends. Um, Gabriel Teodoros, who actually came to town. I met him um, around Harvard. Just like a couple of days right right before. Uh, uh, my boy Tef Poe was also um, Nasia Jones, hip hop fellow at Harvard. Uh, salute Tef. Uh, you know a couple other people that I know. Uh, Murray that I know from like Harvard and the hip hop archive. So again, I went, was blown away, uh, really excited to help her out in any capacity that she needs with that. Because again, I'm a human IMDB slash Wikipedia slash Google. And I could just like rattle off names and dates and projects Singles, maxi singles, EPs for her to add to the database and like fill some of the gaps because she'll have an album or an EP or a single but not be able to find certain information because everything again can't be found online and I just know that type of thing off the top of my head. So there was that. Yesterday, I hadn't been to the um, Isabella Garden Museum in a while. And I hadn't been to an event there. Uh, so yesterday there was an event, uh, the larger conversation, which is had by Kat Morris, who runs in Boston, something we have called BAMS Fest, this big uh, music festival, uh, mainly catering to homegrown talent. And it's 10 percent headliners from outside, as opposed to it being the other way around. <coughs> Boston calling. And um so we went to this event she had uh it was amazing it was a talk about creative resilience everybody left that event uh we left entertained and inspired and just just fueled us to go forth and just do what we do and exists and it's a lot of a lot of stuff that was said that like I kind of needed to hear at that time because again being a creative in this space is frustrating and when you're in this particular uh era where uh Fonte said like it's not about it's not a, the economy the economy isn't necessarily about you know something monetary it's about attention you know trying to grab people's attention, get above the noise. So you're competing in your space with not just things in your particular space. You're competing with the world, society, outside things. 
I'm one of those people that, again, you know, I don't really sleep all that much. And I'm just like always engaged in something. I'm always the Fridays like today's Friday, of course, uh, the new Netflix stuff hits 3 a.m. I'm usually up watching it. New movie comes out Friday. I'm usually if there at the theater as early as possible to see it. If it's something I'm interested in seeing. And also, um, you can't beat them prices at the matinee. I'm a baller on the budget. But yeah, it was an amazing talk. Um, the chef from America's Test Kitchen, um, El Simone, she was there. We had my boy um, Rob Pro Black Gibbs, who I've known forever as a graph writer in the neighborhood. Uh, used to be with ALA. In 1991, he started Artists for Humanity, um, which has brought up a bunch of people that are successful now, young artists and entrepreneurs and people that are prominent in the community. And, you know, we have, of course, Fonte. You know him, little brother, um, foreign exchange, uh, voice actor, MC, vocalist, writer, actor, uh, does a lot. So it was just a, about a bunch of creatives in different disciplines and different spaces, all sharing their experiences of persevering uh, and being and what it means to be black in this day and age while pursuing these things and this, the different obstacles that they face doing it. So it was an amazing night, amazing event. So glad Cat threw it. Uh, afterwards, of course, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen that we, <laughs> we decided to go to Slade's afterwards because, of course, the question is whenever somebody comes from out of town, it's like everybody talks about they know black folks in Boston. So the thing is like, where did the black folks actually go in Boston? Of course, you could tell whose voice I'm doing. And like, um, well, you need to go to Slade's. And it was between Slade's and Daryl's. Of course, Slade's and Daryl's in my neighborhood, not too far from each other, both in walking distance. Uh, two different experiences. I need to point that out. We went to Slade's. And Slade's, I guess, since they knew we were coming, decided to be extra black. And have karaoke night. And it was an experience that I'm never going to forget. I'm not going to rehash everything that happened because uh, Greg and I, G. Valentino Ball of uh, Killer Boombox and I are thinking about possibly doing um, something about it, writing something about it. And we don't want to just like waste that potential money on me talking about it during the podcast when I could do other things. What I will talk about, okay, today is May 3rd. Tomorrow will be May 4th. Yeah, we could do math, dumbass. Here's the thing, though. May 4th, 2019, it's an anniversary. On May 4th, 1984, the film Breakin' premiered. Now, I'm just, full disclosure, I didn't give a damn about the film Breaking when it came out, really. I thought the shit was corny. Okay? 
But let's break down the full history of it and why it was important. Why it was crucial. Although I think the film is corny, although I think it's not that great of a film, a lot of things happened in it that sparked a whole lot of things going forward that, quite frankly, we all benefited from. So, as we all know, there are two films that everybody regards as like the two iconic first hip-hop films. Uh, of course, you have Wild Style came out in theaters, smashed everything, and then you had Style Wars. Style Wars was shown here and there in um, film festivals, and then eventually was shown in New York, different theaters. Uh, it didn't end up becoming national and then later global until... It played in January 18th, 1984 on PBS. And Boston PBS was WGBH Channel 2 and I believe also Channel 44. From what I've heard and what I've gathered, I believe it played in Boston once or twice before it got yanked. Because all this all it took for those one or two screen, uh, uh, sightings of viewings for people to hit the streets and start doing graffiti. The L got bombed up. All these other places, you know, start getting hit up. And they never played it again. They kind of banned it. Now, another thing you need to understand about um, Star Wars is that it wasn't available for rental ever. It just, you couldn't find it. You couldn't buy it. You heard about it. If you didn't see it on PBS when it came on, those times it, it aired, you missed it. You just didn't see it. I would hear audio from it in music, or I hear audio from it used in places, but I didn't know exact. I didn't know exactly what it was, or where it was from. And if someone told me, "Oh, it's from Star Wars," I'm like, "Well, shit." You might as well tell me it's on the moon, because I'm never going to find that movie anywhere. Now. The West Coast equivalent of Wild Style and Star Wars was a movie that was actually uh, funded by, by some Germans, but made by Roxbury's own Topper Carew, who had moved to the West Coast and was uh, a film producer, director, uh, writer. And the movie was called Breaking and Entering. So Breaking and Entering is basically... Uh, the com is is basically like what Star Wars. It's Star Wars for the West Coast, for the LA uh, hip hop scene, but it's like a mishmash of both Wild Style and Star Wars. Even though it, like it really wasn't scripted, so the people that appeared in it, of course, were um, Michael Chambers, also known as Boogaloo Shrimp, um, Shabadoo, Adolfo Quinones. Um, another person who was heavy into it was Ice T. Ice-T was big in it. And ultimately what ended up happening was Canon Films, you know, Golden Globus, uh, they pretty much saw this film and was like, hey, they saw what's happening in the club Radiotron in L.A. And they were like, hey, we want to make a film based on this. But of course, you know, you need like uh, a white central character 
the people were going to actually, you know, draw people in. So they basically centered the movie around, you know, a young woman. So they had to find an attractive white woman. So they found Lucinda Dickey, who was like a lot of people's crush in the um, early to mid late 80s. Uh, I believe she was in Ninja 3 The Domination. Me and Just Blaze had a long discussion about Ninja 3 The Domination when we when we actually met for the first time. And everybody who was there, including FWMJ, what up, Frank, was just like, oh, this is the nerdiest shit ever. Oh, now they're talking about audio, uh, Auto Man. Oh, my God. Now they're talking about Shokasugi and his son. Oh, my God. This is some nerdy shit. Why did we bring Dart? Oh, my God. This Dart and Justice talking about the nerdiest shit in the history of nerd shit. Anyway, that happened. Um, the movie comes out May 4th. It does well. The soundtrack blows up Ollie and Jerry. Ain't no stopping us. No stopping. No one does it better. Um, the fucking freak show on the dance floor blows up. 99 and a half. 99 and a half won't do. Gotta have all, all of your love. That shit. Um, came out so the videos were really big because the videos playing on all the like the video shows and i'm not talking about mtv in lieu of there being no cable in the hood and most people not having cable between 1984 and 1985 a whole bunch of video music video shows popped up just like um in syndication so they used to show this shit all the time uh there's reckless uh, Chris the Glove Taylor uh, was actually big. You know, you see his hand going across fucking like, turntables and shit. Ice T was basically like the 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 guy. This is when his film career actually started. Uh, so, who are some LA um, icons who were in this film? Um, breaking. You had Cooley Jackson uh, was in it. You had uh, uh, Pop and Taco, uh, Pop and Pete. Um, Lil Coco, who they called Hot Tot in Breaking One and Breaking Two, a uh, little short, little short dude jamming, you know. Uh, damn, who else was in this shit? Um, of course, Shabadoo, Boogaloo Shrimp, who Turbo and Ozone, or Ozone and Turbo. Uh, John Claude Van Damme and Layla Rashawn actually appear in this film for short instances. It's like background extras, like doing dance scenes. And um, the dude who played Tong Po is actually in the film, too. You can see him in one of the frames. Um, I don't know if I mentioned um, Lollipop. She was the woman dancing with Electro Rock. I believe they switched the cast in Breaking 2, so it was different people. But what happened is a lot of the people that were in um, Breaking and Entering and then were in Breaking, some of them ended up in um, The Pilot, which was a TV show that came out, I think, September 1984. And it, and it featured um, Homegirl, who was in um, She was in a summer school. She was in the movie Summer School. Kelly Jo Minter. Kelly Jo Minter actually was, I think, either a production assistant or a dancer in Breaking and Entering. I don't know if she was. I don't remember if she was an extra in Breaking or Breaking Two, but she got like the lead in the pilot because she could actually dance. And then, like, I think that kind of helped launch 
her acting career. She was like one of the young actresses, one of the young black actresses that really like had a long run. She was the girl who was in the car with all the records and um, uh, what do you call it? House party. Hey, play, I don't even appreciate the way you're treating me. And he goes, yeah, but I appreciate the way that you look, though. Kelly Jo Minter. Um, oh, wait, I think she was in um, which Nightmare on Elm Street. She was in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe the Dream Warrior. The one that had Ken Sagos, the comedian in it. And he thought he had killed um, Freddie and he had, he had didn't. And Freddie killed him. It was really sad because, you know, black people in horror movies, you, you just don't get a lot of, um, you just don't get a lot of wins. I really believe that, like, one of the black dudes, only black dudes that actually came out on top in a in a horror movie was Shaval Ross, who y'all know was Dudley from Different Strokes when that motherfucker ran. They didn't show him get killed, so I imagine he made it. He must have some serious survivor's guilt. That's something we've actually talked about. And I better stop doing this because what's going to happen is I'm going to go off on a tangent and I'm going to forget what the fuck I'm talking about. Ah, breaking. So breaking ends up becoming a huge hit. The soundtrack blows up. Uh, how much did it blow up? So let's see. I believe the budget for breaking the film was about one million dollars promotion. I can't say that they spent a disgusting amount of money on promotion maybe another one to five million the film did about 40 at the box office and then when rentals came out it did more the soundtrack was bananas the soundtrack did numbers so it generated a disgusting amount of money for mgm uh golden globus canon films and Cannon Films was going through a um, a transition at the time because they had released this film called Bolero. I'm not going to go into detail as to what had happened, but um, it was interesting. Uh, so the soundtrack was released on Polydor Records. It was really interesting um, because here's the thing: there were film, there were songs that were played in the film that weren't necessarily on the soundtrack. So, um, like. Beatbox by Art of Noise is in the film, but it's not on the soundtrack. There's a Kraftwerk song, um, can't remember what the hell it's called. Um, it's in there. People were looking for it. It's kind of like how in um, Breaking Two, George Kranz's Din Dada was like a big part of the film. They like they rehearsed to it and then they danced to it uh, to save miracles. There's a lot of people like, oh shit, he going through it. And there's a lot of people like, what the hell is he talking about? Um, why do I always do that? The Eddie Murphy uh, serious black man voice when I do that. Maybe it's just because I'm a, a kid, a 70s baby and an 80s kid. But um, there's another song um, that's in the film but not on the soundtrack and people were looking for it. And I think that's what a, another reason why people bought the soundtrack so much. But um, yeah, the soundtrack did very well. So, what came out, what was around out at the same time is a break-in. Actually, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look up what else was released in May 84. So, I'm going to look at films in 1984. 
No, I don't want to know about the films released in the UK in 1984. Why would you? See, I do so many different searches that they try to figure out where I'm headed with it. And I'm like, no, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to do. It's not what I'm trying to do. Not at all. Son of a bitch. So I will scroll down to May. So what did it come out? Alphabet City, The Bounty, don't remember those. Oh shit. Breaking came out the same day as 16 Candles. It came out the week before Firestarter and The Natural. And it came out almost three weeks before Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Holy shit. Oh, wait, now I remember it. So June. June 1984. Once Upon a Time in America, Streets of Fire, and uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock all came out the same weekend. And I remember I wanted to go see Once Upon a Time in America, and my brother and sister, older brother and sister, were looking at me like I was on, I was on um, drugs. They thought I was on peyote. They would not allow me to see it. So Beach Street comes out. Um, we don't go see Beach Street. What we do is my older sister, older brother, bring myself and my younger brother, Jeff, to Ghostbusters. As we're going to Ghostbusters, I'm like trying to make the case for Once Upon a Time in America. They're like, it's not happening. So Ghostbusters, Gremlins, uh, Val Kilmer, uh, Top Secret, which is one of the first movies we ever rented, came out. Uh, The Karate Kid came out like the next week. It was a hell of a summer for film. But what ended up happening is to give you an idea of how big breaking was, it out earned uh, 16 candles initially. And I believe it was playing in fewer theaters. So here's something that's going to blow your minds. Breaking had a one million dollar budget and made about 40 million between 38 and 40 million at the box office. 16 candles which is regarded as a classic. Its budget was between 6 and 7 million and it made less than 25 million at the box office. But it's regarded as a hit and as a classic. Breaking blew the doors off of 16 candles at the box office. To give you an idea of like how big of a hit it was. And actually let me try to find out how the soundtrack did. Can I figure that out? Um, let me go to RIAA Golden Platinum. Whoa, it, the tab's there. Yeah, sure. Of course. I mean, I've done... It's funny because I do so much research that I forget that, like, I'm going to search it and this is, like, it's going to come up because I don't really sleep. So it's like, this is when everything just, like, comes up. So break in. Soundtrack breaking more details. It went gold July 27th, 1984, and platinum July 27th, 1984. I know the soundtrack came out before the film. So the film was released May 4th, 
So the soundtrack likely came out late April. It's really hard to uh, nail down uh, release dates. And it went gold and platinum by July 1984. That's nuts. So apparently the other song that was on this that was in the film that wasn't on the soundtrack was an Al Jarreau song. Al Jarreau? What the fuck? I need to track this shit down. What the fuck song is that? Like, I'm thinking Breaking. Oh, you know what I need? I need that Al Jarreau. The Al Jarreau jam from Breaking. What the what fucking song was that? I need to figure this out. Because I'm going to drive myself crazy if I can't figure out what the Al Jarreau jam was that was in Breaking. When this love together, gotta make it last forever. That damn show ain't it. So apparently the song was Boogie Down. I don't remember the song Boogie Down by Al Jarreau. I'm pretty sure if I play it, I'll rem- I'll remember it. But I, you know what? Let's just go to YouTube. Let's look Boogie Down by Al Jarreau. I don't think I've ever done this while doing one of these episodes. So the thing is that Shabadoo and um, so Shabadoo and Boogaloo Shrimp. Or as we just started calling them in the hood, Turbo and Ozone. Oh, and goddamn well, that's not their names. Um, because in black movies, you become your character's name forever. Omar Epps was Q years after Juice had come out. Um, there's an iconic scene in Breaking. Again, I wasn't a huge fan of it like that. But I do remember it because they kept, they put it in one of the videos. I can't remember which video exactly, but the scene with um, Turbo dancing with the broom, the broom scene, that was a a big thing. They tried to replicate it with Breaking 2 with him dancing in the room, you know, the room that was like spinning around and stuff like that. But it didn't. It, it was nowhere near as iconic. It just didn't happen. I'm pulling up Algero Boogie Down because I don't know what in the fuck this song is. Oh, I know this song. I know this. Just to get my boogie down. Oh, I need it to let the. And to get my boogie down. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I know the song. All I need is to get my boogie down. I got it. I know the song. This they played the shit to death. Yes. Okay. That was in breaking. That must have been some one of the um scenes. And some of you might be hearing this and like screaming while I'm talking. Boogie down. Boogie Down. It's a scene where they're dancing on the street. I barely remember this fucking movie. Let me explain to you my um my entry. I wanted to see Beach Street. And then I saw Beach Street. I didn't see Beach Street in the theater. I saw Beach Street on uh, VHS tape. I believe the first movie I was brought to ever by my family was Ghostbusters in 1984. Because they thought I was... um. So you have to understand, 
they thought I was mature enough to be taken to the movies. And also, they were of age to take me to the movies. My sister was born in 1967. My older brother was born in uh, 1969. So, to give you an idea, 1984, my sister turned 17 in February. My big brother turned 15 in September. I turned 9 in August. So they like, he's eight, he's nine, you know, we can take him to the movies. And also the other thing you have to factor in, my younger brother was three years younger than me. So you can't take me anywhere and not take my younger brother. So when we were finally brought to the theater and then of course there were movies they were going to and they were not bringing us and we felt like, why can't we go? And they explained to us, it's, you can't go to a R-rated movie. You know, I believe the first R-rated movie I remember them going to and me being hella salty about it was oh Purple Rain my big sister and big brother both went to Purple Rain my big brother was tall and had a mustache and he's black so um they figured people didn't really have IDs a lot of times they would look at you and say yeah you old enough for this you know and I used to get in the movies back in the day because I was super tall and had a mustache and had a deep voice. But I was like 12, 13, something like that. Now, it worked great when I was at Latin and I was hanging out on the Northeastern campus and everybody thought I was a freshman. It didn't work out great with the police after the Charles Stewart thing because everybody thought I was a grown ass man. I wanted to be a kid then. I didn't appear to be one. I didn't sound like one. So... You know, give and take, push, pull. It comes, it comes with territory. So, um, they went to see Purple Rain. Now, the Purple Rain soundtrack, Prince's album, came out ahead of the film. So everybody knew the songs when they went to see it. And also the video, I think the first video was When Doves Cry. When Doves Cry didn't have that many uh, scenes from the film, but it was when... Um, uh, what came out? Let's Go Crazy. So the video for Let's Go Crazy was like a commercial for the film. And also Jungle Love by um, The Time. Those two, mo those two uh, videos pretty much sold that film. I can do that later when I actually talk about Purple Rain. Let's go back to Breaking. So what happens is Breaking blows up largely because of the soundtrack. And the videos, uh, the videos, of course, ain't no stopping us. But Ollie and Jerry will show a lot of scenes from the movie. Uh, though I don't remember the freak on the dance floor video. I remember the ninety nine and a half video. That's what I remember. Ninety nine and a half won't do. Gotta have all all of your love. Cap 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 cap. That shit. So that John. Had a lot of scenes from the movie. Now, mind you, it was like the the exciting stuff. Them dancing, wearing the suits, tearing the suits off. I didn't see Breaking. I saw Breaking 2. My big brother rented Breaking 2, dubbed Breaking 2. We had it. We watched that religiously because my big brother had a crush on uh, the Latina, uh, specifically the Puerto Rican girl, who they dubbed over her voice. I... Ay, por favor, por favor. Like, why would they do that? That didn't make no sense. 
um, no speaking glass. Remember that shit? So I saw breaking two a million times. I saw breaking for the first time. What year was it when I saw breaking for the first time? I believe I saw breaking for the first time in like 1994, like 10 years after it came out. And I couldn't stop laughing because it was that bad. It was that terrible. I think I was 19 when I saw Breaking for the first time. I was like, this shit is terrible. Now, also, you have to remember, I saw Beat Street. I saw Beat Street for the first time in around 85. I saw Beat Street for the first time around 85. I think I saw Beat Street for the first time around the same time I saw Scarface for the first time. I saw Scarface for the first time with my dad and all my brothers and his girlfriend. You say, your dad had a girlfriend? Yes, my dad's girlfriend. One of my dad's girlfriends. One of my dad's girlfriends that we actually knew well. She was around for a minute. Um, so we all watched. Scarface was a family film. If you were with my dad, it was a family film. It was Everything was explained to us. It wasn't anything overly what we could take. And you would imagine, wait a second, how could a nine-year-old child handle Scarface? With my with my parents, it was, it was, my dad it was fine. We wouldn't be watching Scarface with my mom. That shit wouldn't be happening. Just no. And no, we did not tell her. We ain't stupid. Um. So I saw Breaking, and I was like, this shit is terrible. But also to put it in context, I when I saw Beach Street. I was kind of underwhelmed with some of the plot and some of the graffiti, which clearly wasn't spray painted. It was very clear. I wasn't enthused about Ramo. I thought he was corny. I didn't like the black scent that the dude who was supposed to be double K was using. And again, I'll go further into detail with that in June when it's the 35th anniversary of um beach street when i'll have a whole bunch of venom for that film what was great about it was great what wasn't wasn't but breaking in particular was huge because it opened the floodgates for what was going to happen with breaking i mean with beach street coming out the next month and run dmc was already out and, you know, Curtis Blow was putting out stuff. So it blew 1984 up. The 84 Olympics came out. You know, you had the, you had the uh, B-Boys at the 84 Olympics, which was in L.A. After Breaking had come out. It was after Breaking had come out and Beat Street had come out. So hip-hop culture was taking over the world. The world was just enthralled. And just like, oh my God, this is amazing. They're spinning on their backs and their heads. So it was like, it was a big deal. So yeah, breaking tomorrow will be its 35th anniversary. I'm old. There's just no way around it. Can't fight it. And it's funny when I like sit down. So what's it say? Breaking opened. This is the Wikipedia. I fucking hate Wikipedia. Um, Breaking opened in 1,069 venues, May 4th, 1984. Outgrow 16 candles, which had more screens, 1240. 
It was ranked number one in the box office, earning six million dollars. By the end of the run, it, it gained, it grossed thirty-eight million, whatever, at the domestic box office, and it was the eighteenth top-grossing film of nineteen eighty-four. Yay! Ebert said it was trash, gave it one point five out of four stars. Eh, I can understand that. I can totally understand that because that shit was cheesy. And like people just show up out of nowhere and like, hey, there's somebody you should meet. You should meet my boys Turbo and Ozone. Who the fuck is this guy? It's like, well, who's this guy? And then they go to the, this isn't real dance. Let's fuck out of here, dude. It's like, there's just so much about that film that like I can't fully watch without breaking out in full laughter. I cannot do it. There's just so much about it. And like when I watch Breaking and Entering, Breaking and Entering is incredible. It's incredible because it is a full, it's the entire LA hip hop scene in 1982-3 is preserved in amber forever. That's so pure and so wonderful. So if you ever do watch breaking please do me a favor go to youtube and watch breaking and entering which was made by uh boston legend rocks roxbury uh resident topper crew man who made so many other iconic films the man behind dc cab he was one of the first people that brought he, he brought martin uh to the to the screen at fox topper crew has credits Topper Carew was part of Say Brother, um, along with Stan Lathan. Stan Lathan, who uh, among his greatest creations after living in Boston uh, was uh, Sanaa Lathan. Uh, Props for that. Um, Great job, Stan. I admire your work. You a genius. Apollo legend. Yeah, so there's that. I'm trying to figure out a way to close out this episode. Um, I feel like I'm on good doing good time because I'm right, right at the cusp of like 40 minutes. So I want to get this right around 40 minutes again because you have no idea how proud I was of myself that I was able to do an episode that was only 40 minutes long and I didn't ramble for the last 10 minutes about nothing. So that was great. So it's looking like what I'm going to do coming up this next week is I'm going to focus a lot on doing um, some unique pieces regarding like research in the space of rap writing. And how it's needed because there was this big argument that we had online about our critics necessary. I could have done this whole episode about that. Uh, uh, is critique necessary? But it would have just been angry ranting. And I already angry ranted on Twitter. And I'm really not in the mood to do that right now. But I'll probably write a piece about it. I'm probably going to um, post it on um, DJ Booth or something. More than likely. But 
what I'm going to get into this month, especially, I'm going to focus on um, doing the Boston Legends podcast, do the follow up episodes, whatever. The reason why I haven't we haven't released the Boston Legends podcast episodes, whatever, because we want to do them back to back to back to back to back and have content. But the weather has been uh, uncooperative. It's been like no this October in Boston and it's supposed to be spring. It's May now and it's like I'm still wearing a scully. I wore uh, thermals a couple days this week. Um, I need that to end. So again, I'm looking forward to it finally getting warm and staying warm this month. I'm looking forward to being more consistent with what I do outside of the space of writing. I'm looking forward to showing up more on college campuses and possibly having some different projects out there that I could like push to people. I'm just looking forward to what's about to happen this spring and summer with the Boston Legends um, line. So we're all going we're all going to be there together excited about the same shit. That's the best place to end. <laughs>